Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Guess what the theme is this morning? Be the Christian. We are continuing to talk about what it is to be Christian and how important it is for you individually to be the Christian, even if everybody else in the world apostatizes, you nevertheless hold on to your Christian profession. You can turn this morning to Romans 6. That's where we're going to start the first six verses, and we will look at it in just a moment. It is going to kind of spell out what we're going to discuss as the second benefit of Christianity. Last week, we talked about the first benefit of Christianity, which was that God through Christ, paid for all our sins and trespasses and rebellion, and oh, wasn't that good news to find out that God was willing to forgive us for all the ways that we have been rebellious against him. So that is the first benefit of Christianity because God does not do that for everybody across the board. Not everybody on the planet ends up forgiven. Some people end up under God's judgment. But we, as Christian people who have faith in Christ, we're promised that our sin, our rebellion, our trespasses are cast as far as the east is from the west. Okay, but then the next thing that we are told biblically is that since Christ has already dealt with our sin problem, since Christ has already acted on our behalf in terms of 
procuring our redemption for us as a result we are supposed to react to him by doing exactly what Jeff just prayed about that because God is holy we're supposed to be holy that because we have been redeemed by God we are to walk righteously and if you're honest with yourself you know that you just can't do that if you know yourself at all you know your failures you know your continued sinfulness even though you may love Jesus Christ even though you may be fully and completely in the Christian faith nevertheless you know that you struggle with sin so what are you going to do about it that's the question in chapter 6 starting at verse 1 knowing that grace has saved us knowing that we are redeemed because of the finished work of Christ well what are we going to say then should we continue in sin so that grace might abound so that grace might increase obviously the answer is no that's what Paul says in the second verse may it never be is the NASB rendering of it it's God forbid it's an absolutely no way no that's not what this is about you're not supposed to recognize that Christ has saved you by grace and then say well then since grace glorifies God I'm gonna make God really really glorious by giving him somebody really ridiculous that he can save and so I'm gonna sin all the more so that his grace abounds all the more so that he gets all the more glory Paul says don't even start thinking like that instead what he's going to say is because you've been saved you are to reckon your flesh reckon the old man and his lusts to be dead reckon yourself to be crucified with Christ because verse 2 how shall we who have died to sin still live in it there's a tough one I'm in Christ Christ is in me that's the biblical equation so then when he died on the cross and paid for my sin debt I'm supposed to reckon myself as equally dead to sin to the things that Christ died for to the things that Christ redeemed me from and therefore I am supposed to live in a way walk in a way where I'm no longer living in sin because I have died to it and that's just really difficult I'm going to stress the difficulty of it verse 3 says or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death okay now Paul's really driving the point if you were baptized into Christ Jesus then you're baptized into the death of Christ the same way that he died and rose again you go under the water a symbol of your own death and then you rise again to walk in newness of life therefore you're to reckon yourself as dead to sin therefore says verse 4 we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too 
might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him also, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, and death is no longer master over him. Okay, the wages of sin is death. And Paul says that that death is no longer going to be master over us because it's no longer master over Christ. Therefore, sin is no longer master over us any more than it is master over Christ. We reckon ourselves to be dead with Christ, and therefore we no longer walk according to the deeds of this flesh, of our own sinful mind, of the proclivities of this world, or the prince of the power of the air. We have been freed from all that. Therefore, we no longer walk along the course of sin because we are no longer to be slaves to sin. And then there's us every day. If it were left up to us, if God laid out this kind of standard and said, this is what righteousness looks like, now do it, perform it, we would be just as guilty before God as Old Testament Israel was. Because Old Testament Israel had the law, had the commandments, had the 613 ordinances, and yet all it did was demonstrate and prove to them how sinful they really were because they could not live up to the absolute righteousness of God. So what are we going to do? There's the dilemma. Have I spelled out the dilemma now? Do you kind of understand the dilemma that we are in? Okay, well then here is benefit of Christianity Number two, which is through Christ, and number three, through the Holy Spirit, we actually get help. Oh, God, I'm so glad for the help. We get help so that we no longer are in the practice of sin. We are no longer consciously, wantingly sinning. We are aware of our sinfulness And we engage the fight, but as we engage the battle against our flesh, we actually have help from our high priest. And our high priest knows what it's like to be touched with our infirmities, which is the reason that he came to the planet, took on flesh and blood, became a human being, and then was tempted in every way like we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, he is able to relate to us. I know as a young man, I thought, well, sure, Christ remained sinless. He's God. And whenever I was suffering, whenever I was struggling, whenever things were difficult, I was told, well, you're going to find your comfort in God, in Christ. And I would think... Yeah, but they don't know what it's like. Well, now we're going to read from the book of Hebrews 
the writer of Hebrews argues, but Jesus does know what it's like. And in fact, the suffering that he underwent while he was here on planet Earth was greater than any suffering you have suffered yet here during your sojourn here on planet Earth. Therefore, he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to have his own friends turn on him. He knows what it is to be completely abandoned and have to trust in God and God alone. And he is our high priest. Now, the high priest is the person who would go in and sacrifice on behalf of the people toward God. The prophet was the person who would hear from God and then bring God's word to the people. So he would take God's things and bring them to the people. But the high priest would take the people's things, the people's sins, and then go sacrifice to God for the people. So the high priest stood between the sinfulness of human beings and the righteous, holy, absolute God. And Christ is referred to as our faithful high priest pertaining to the things of God so that he could stand in the gap between our sinfulness and God's absolute righteousness. And he would sacrifice like every high priest, but the sacrifice that he offered was himself, his own body, his own blood, a perfect sacrifice that he sacrificed for us. And the reason that he could be a good and a faithful high priest to us and was willing to befriend us despite our enemy status and our sinfulness. The reason that he did all that was that he came to the planet, took on flesh and blood, and knows that we are just dust. And therefore he can pity us, and therefore he knows the struggle. He does know what it's like. But let's read it out of the Bible. Steve, if you would, would you look up Galatians 5.24 for just a moment? And for the rest of you, would you turn to Hebrews 2? The second benefit of Christianity is that we actually get help to stop us from consciously remaining in the practice of sin. Because if it were left up to us, we just simply could not do it. Steve's going to read Galatians 5.24. Don't stand up. Go ahead, stand up. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. So whether we're looking at Romans, whether we're looking at Galatians, it's very clear that it is commanded of us from God that we are to crucify our flesh. But our high priest is there walking alongside to give us the aid, the benefit, the help, and the forgiveness that it takes to walk differently than we used to be. Here, I'll see if I can make this more practical. Anybody here remember themselves before they were saved? I do. I don't mean I remember you. I remember me before I was saved. Two things were true of me. One was that I sinned wantonly. Whatever my flesh desired, that's what I did. Including having an ego the size of Texas. 
I was just so completely self-involved that my sinfulness was just constant and continual in so many varied and sundry ways. Number two, I didn't know I was that sinful. I had no concept of sin. I had no concept that I was doing wrong. I had no idea that I was rebelling against a holy God. I was completely blinded to my sin, and therefore my sinfulness didn't even bother me, which is why I was never in the fight against my fleshly sinfulness, because it didn't seem to be any big deal to me. I wasn't even aware of it. I just went along my merry way, and I figured if there ever was a God and I ever met him, he would think I was pretty cool because everyone else did. And so that's just pretty much how I lived my life. And that all has to do with this concept of Christ as our high priest helping us. Number one, to understand our sinfulness to understand our depravity, to understand the holiness of God and the distance between us. But then, for those of you who could remember yourselves in your pre-saved state, would you say now you've changed? Would you say now that you're more conscious of your own sinfulness? Would you say now that it is your desire to please God, the God who saved you, that your love of Christ drives you to want to perform and live and walk in a way that is pleasing to him? Well, if that is true, it is because he has done something for you. He has changed you from within, taken out your stony heart, given you a heart of flesh, opened your eyes, opened your ears, gave you a consciousness of your own sin, and then came alongside you and helped you to walk in a way that was pleasing to himself because you couldn't do it by yourself. And our faithful high priest intercedes for us but also pities us and helps us, and that is a tremendous benefit. Hebrews 2, everybody there? We're going to start in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that means we human beings, we are flesh and blood. So then he himself, Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, and that is the devil. In other words, the devil had the power of death over human beings. He would make people sick, people would decay, people would die, and therefore he was always able to keep human beings in fear, in constant fear that something was going to go wrong, some disease was going to get you, something was going to get you, and then you were going to get sick, and then you were going to die. And so people lived in this constant fear. So Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could be just like us in understanding what it is to live on planet Earth in flesh and blood. He took on the same, and then 
allowed himself to die, physically die, undergo the dying process so that he could get up from the grave, overcome death, and thereby remove the fear of death from Satan, who had always used that as his bargaining chip, as his hammer, as the thing that he held over us like the sword of Damocles, so that he could keep us constantly living in fear where Christ came took on flesh and blood, died in our place, and then rose again, effectively taking away the fear of death and effectively eliminating the tool that Satan had to keep us living constantly in fear. Because we know that when we die, if Christ got up again, and he did, we're getting up again. Amen. So there's no more fear. Fear of death. So Satan can't dangle that over your head anymore. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and so that he might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. If you live your whole life afraid to die, if you live your whole life in fear of what's going to get you next, you're living a life of fear and slavery. You are bound to this constant fear. Tom and I come out of a church in Los Angeles where we were taught effectively that there's like a devil behind every bush. Anything that ever went wrong, it was the devil overpowering us in some way. We were told that if you wake up at 3 in the morning, that that is the 12-hour opposite difference of the hour that Jesus died on the cross. He died at 3 in the afternoon. If you wake up at 3 in the morning, that's just Satan rousing you and trying to... I mean, it was, it was crazy. And I lived in constant fear. I lived in this constant sense that Satan was going to get me and that if I ever let down my guard, I was going to give him an opportunity and he was going to come swooping in. And whether it was a sound system going wrong or whether it was a guitar out of tune or whether it was a broken drum head, it was Satan. It was the devil. Everything was the devil as far as I was concerned. And what a tremendous sense of freedom when I came to understand that Satan as a created being is also under the hand of an absolutely powerful sovereign God and that nothing touches me, nothing touches you that doesn't first go through nail-scarred hands. Once I came to recognize that God was in complete control and that Satan is doing what God wants him to do and that when God is done with him, he's going to cast him into the lake of fire. In fact, when God just wants to stop him for a little while, he binds him with a chain and puts him in the bottomless pit. God has complete control and authority over Satan, and Satan can't do anything except what God allows him to do. And Jesus Christ came to the planet, took on flesh and blood, lived and died as a real-life flesh person so that he could take away that power from Satan, demonstrate to Satan that he had no more authority, and so that he could free us from that fear of death that kept us enslaved all our lives. That's a big benefit. And I saw you mouth amen. And you know, it's okay to say it out loud. 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give that kind of help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Human beings get that kind of help and aid. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to have the weakness of the flesh. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to live on planet earth and go through the difficulties and the hatred of other people and the cruelty of other people. He knows what it's like to be beaten and spit upon. He knows what it's like to be utterly cast out, to be nailed to a chunk of wood and have people mock him even as he's dying with nails through his hands. He knows what it's like to be a human being. And he took on flesh and blood on purpose to become a human being so that he could die, so that he could eliminate the fear of death from those people who belong to him and He became our faithful, merciful high priest in the things pertaining to God. He made propitiation when he sacrificed his own body, his own flesh to God on behalf of the people. And now he himself was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin, which by the way, I will mention the very fact that he was tempted in all ways and yet without sin means that the sin is not the temptation. The sin is acting on the temptation. But he was tempted. He just knew how to trust God and to faithfully stand in righteousness as our substitute. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Okay, so you're tempted. You're going through a temptation. Remember, the sin is not the temptation. It's acting on the temptation that is the sin. And so you are tempted in something. Is it left up to you to fight that battle by yourself? Is it left up to you to decide whether or not you're going to give in to the temptation? If it's left up to you, I'll go ahead and tell you, you're going to lose every single time. If it's left up to you, you're going to give in to the temptation every single time. If it's left up to you, you are powerless not to feed your flesh the things that your flesh wants. If it's left up to you. But it's not. It's not left up to you. One of the great benefits of Christianity is not only does God tell you to walk in a way that is different than the way that you used to walk, to walk in righteousness, to walk in accordance with the profession that you have. He also helps you to do it. He helps you because he knows what it is to be tempted and to be fleshly. 
He knows what it is to suffer. He knows all of the things that you're going through. And therefore, as your faithful high priest, he can come to your aid when you are tempted. And that is a very big benefit. In other words, don't lean on yourself the next time that you're going through a serious temptation. Instead, lean on Christ, who is your very present help in times of trouble. Go over to Hebrews 4 for a minute. Hebrews 4, we're going to start reading at verse 14 a little bit more about Christ as our high priest who knows what it is to be tempted the way we are. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, then let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you understand that phrase? That is such a good phrase. The very Son of God who is sitting at the right hand of God right now knows what it is to walk on this planet in flesh and blood. And therefore he is able to empathize with our weaknesses. That's the reason why, as we engage this battle with the flesh, when we do fail, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to recognize our dustiness, our incapability, our inherent weakness. And the reason that he knows that is because he became one of us. And now he is our high priest. Now he is the one who sacrifices to God on our behalf in order to make up for our inability. And he understands what we're made of and how we are. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The only reason that we can go rushing to the throne of grace is because our high priest has already done the mediatorial work between us and God. And therefore, when we come to the throne of God, what we find is mercy and grace and help in our time of need. And that is a tremendous benefit. I'm going to emphasize it again. It is a benefit because the holy, righteous God told you, be holy and righteous. And you can't be holy and righteous left to yourself, left to your flesh. And so Christ himself helps you and the grace and mercy of God forgives you and encourages you so that you can do the very thing you never used to be able to do. To actually walk in a way that is appropriate for your profession. And when you do fail, when you do sin, when you do rebel against God, because let's be honest, you do. When that happens, we have a faithful high priest who's standing there mediating for us. It just doesn't get better than that. Because everything, I say it over and over again, I say it on a, 
on such a constant basis that it ought to be tattooed to your brain by now. Everything necessary for our full, complete, eternal salvation is accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. There's no part of it that you get to say, yeah, but I did mine. I kicked in my percentage. Instead, God through Christ accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. Now, Leon is going to stand up and he's going to read you 1 Corinthians 10.13. He doesn't know that until this very moment, but that's what he's about to do. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Do you understand that verse now? There's no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. We all go through these temptations. There's no temptation, no difficulty, no trial that you've ever faced where you can say, well, this is unique. Nobody's ever gone through this again. We all say it. You'll hear yourself say things like, nobody's ever had to struggle the way I'm struggling. But the truth is, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But the good news is, along with the temptation, God has already provided the help. He has already provided the way through it, the way out of it, so that you can endure it. He's never going to tempt you beyond what you're able to endure. He knows what your breaking place is. He knows what the breaking point is, and he's going to use that temptation to increase your faith. And so even the trials, even the difficulties, even the struggles that you go through in this life are all in the hands of a sovereign God who is doing everything for his glory and for your good. And so there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. You will notice that that verse did not say, when you are tempted, be faithful. When you are tempted, you always are the answer. It doesn't say that. It says, when you're tempted, God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted above that that you're able to endure. And why? Because he's a faithful and a loving and a merciful God who is doing these things for your benefit and for your good. He's taking you through these trials and temptations that are common to mankind, but he is faithful and he is going to provide the way of escape so that you can endure the temptations that he takes you through. Again, it is always him glorifying himself in the salvation of his people, and even in the ways and times that he's allowing you to be tempted, he is nevertheless right there with you, helping you to endure it and get through it. Again, tremendous benefit. Now Kellen's going to read Galatians 5.16 to you. He didn't know it until just this very moment. There are more verses coming, so everybody... Be alert, because our country can use more alerts. That's, I, I don't even know what that was about, but it was buying time until Kellen was ready to read you Galatians 5.16, which says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So there's the answer. How do you avoid the desires of your flesh? The desires of your flesh that used to completely overtake you? The things that you used to do, 
constantly, willy-nilly, without any thought, without any conscience that you were offending a righteous, holy God. What is the answer? Walk by the Spirit. Trust in God. Trust his Holy Spirit. Trust your high priest. Trust the one who is constantly interceding for you. That is where you'll find a very present help in your time of need. So, so far what we've seen in the benefits of Christianity is number one, your sin is paid for. And number two, he gives you the help in order to walk in a way that he expects of you since he has already redeemed you since he has already determined that you're going to spend eternity in his glory with him, he then wants you to walk differently from the world, and he gives you the strength, the power, the ability, the help in order to do that. That's two big benefits. Let's go to number three. Now, it would be inappropriate and unkind of me to just continue calling on people and saying that they're now going to read a verse. So we're going to hand out a few verses first so that you know what's coming. For instance, Micah's going to look up John 15, 26. And Jeff, you want to read? Sure you do. Luke 24, 49. Tom, John 7, 39. Leon, you want to read? Again. Galatians 3.14. We're just going to keep you in Galatians. We will get to all of those verses in just a moment. So benefit number two was our high priest took on flesh and blood so that he could empathize with us. He knows what we're made of and the difficulties of the temptations that we endure. And he gives us the strength to endure it. But then benefit number three is that God's own Holy Spirit inhabits us, educates us, and guides us. And this is what we know as the born-again experience. We are regenerated from the inside out so that our wants, our desires are completely changed. So that our mind is changed. So that we no longer want the things that only benefit us. We want to be a benefit to other people. And mostly we want to walk in a way that is pleasing to our Father. Where did that inspiration come from? It didn't come from inside you. It came from the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting you, quickening you, born again, so that you could desire to be pleasing to God and to walk in such a way. So the verses that I have just handed out are all going to say that the Holy Spirit was given by God for our benefit. For instance, Micah has John 15, 26. He's a young, healthy dude. He's going to stand up. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Okay, so what word did Jesus use? He said, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. He's coming and he's going to testify of me. What was the particular nomenclature that Jesus placed on the Holy Spirit at that moment? The helper. The one who's going to help you in this life. The one who's going to help you in your times of temptation. The one who's going to help you to understand the word of God. The one who's going to help you to walk the way that you are designated to walk. 
The Holy Spirit of God is given to us to inhabit us, to gift us, to help us. Luke 24, 49, I believe that's uh, Jeff, is it? Who is also young and healthy and will stand up. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's an actual dunamis. It's an actual power of God. And that power of God taking up residence inside you is going to change you. It's going to change your heart, change your mind, change your eyes, change your ears. The very power of God is going to give you the help when you need the help in order to walk the way you are instructed to walk. He is a helper to you and he is the power of God in order to accomplish the things that God has determined to to actually accomplish in you. The Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. John 7, 39, who's got that? Who did I get? Oh, Tom's got that. Who, despite his knees, is also standing. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This he spoke about the Spirit of God. Now, why did the Spirit of God come? Why did the Spirit of God inhabit human beings? It was promised in the Old Testament. The Spirit was promised repeatedly. The Holy Spirit would occasionally come on people in the Old Testament, and people like King Saul would prophesy to the degree that people would say, is he now among the sons of the prophets? Because he would prophesy under the Spirit of God. But then the Spirit of God would leave him. And then he would go crazy again and go mad and try to kill David again. So the Spirit of God was a known entity in the Old Testament. But he was always separate from human beings. But there was this promise. Part of the new covenant. That God was going to place his Spirit inside people. A whole new dynamic. And then Jesus explained the Holy Spirit to his apostles as he's going to be with you and he's going to be in you. He's going to be with you eternally. So not only is he going to be a helper, not only is he going to be the power of God inside you, but he's going to be with you constantly. And that promise had existed for hundreds of years before it actually was accomplished. And when was it accomplished? When Jesus died. He had to die. He had to go to the cross. Once he had accomplished that and rose up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, he then sent his spirit to his apostles to come and be the helper that he is. So then, Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. See, the promise of the Spirit originally, as I said, was in the Old Testament. And it was given to the children of Abraham. It was given to the Israelites. It was given to the Jews. And so they were anticipating, they were looking forward to the coming of their Messiah and the promise of the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting them. But then very good news that Leon just read, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us even though we're not Israelites, even though we're not Jews. Therefore, we share in what's called the promise of the Spirit. 
there was this long-standing promise from God that the Holy Spirit was coming and that the Holy Spirit was going to take up residence. And that when he did, he would regenerate people from the inside. And the Jews were waiting for that. The Jews were anticipating that. And then the Gentiles got it. Astounding grace. John 16, starting at verse 12, says, this is Jesus talking more to the apostles about the Holy Spirit. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Remember I said the Holy Spirit inhabits and educates and guides you. Part of that education is that he's going to lead you to the truth so that you have some comprehension of the things of God and what the real truth is. And why is he going to guide you into all truth? What is the means by which he's going to guide you into all truth? For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take from mine and will disclose it to you, and all things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay, think through that sentence for just a moment. Jesus has just said, God, who knows everything, has given me authority over everything, and then through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you what's mine. What's his? Everything! All things, all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding of the truth is then going to be yours. How? Via the Holy Spirit. The gifting of the Holy Spirit. Christ is using the Holy Spirit as the communication vehicle so that he can speak truth directly to his church. So that they can understand his word. So that we can understand things to come. So that we understand what the eschatological hope is. We know all these things not because we read books or because we're clever or because we figured it out like some kind of a puzzle. We know these things because the Holy Spirit of God promised for long ages past actually came to inhabit people as a result of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And now the Holy Spirit is teaching us things that we simply could not know otherwise. Got it? Okay, so how big is that benefit? I mean, that's a pretty big benefit. I'm going to have to go with, yeah, that counts. That's, that's a big one. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 Turn there for a moment. And actually, Kellen, if you would, stand up and read that nice and loud. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We're going to understand some more of the benefits of the Holy Spirit. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Okay, so in giving you the Holy Spirit, not only are you sealed for the day of redemption, in other words, the Holy Spirit does not leave people the way he was uh, represented in the Old Testament. He wasn't just simply, or he isn't just simply on people now, 
He is in people. And once he is in you, that seals you for all eternity. So much so that Paul would then say that he is like a down payment of everything else to come. That sealing of the Holy Spirit inside us guarantees us our eternal future. There's no way that our sin, that our rebellion can mess up what God has eternally determined to do because he has sealed us by the Holy Spirit and he has given us this pledge, this down payment, this guarantee, this promise from God that everything else he has said about us is going to come true based on you've got the pledge. You've got the promise. And if he has given you the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is the sure and certain down payment on everything else that God has said is going to be true about you. So are you going to make it to heaven? Are you going to make it to glory? Are you going to make it to eternity? Well, yes, you are. Based on what? The Holy Spirit. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Because you're walking in the way that God said you were going to walk. How do you know you're walking in the way you're going to walk? Because I don't walk like I used to walk. And did you make that change? No, the Holy Spirit of God inside you made that change, which is sure and certain proof that you have the Holy Spirit, which is sure and certain proof that you have the down payment and the pledge from God of everything else he has ever said about you, which is the sure and certain proof proof that you're on your way to heaven and eternity. You see how that works? Yeah. Amen. Is it better when I talk it fast? <laughs> I'm going to read from 2 Peter. I'm going to be starting at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. You may want to turn there because we'll be finishing our morning here. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ if you're in the faith right now it is not because you figured it out and made an intellectual decision that Christianity was a good idea if you're in the faith right now, it is because you have received that faith as a gift from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Why do you walk different? Why do you be the Christian? Why do you act differently than the world? Why is the world able to look at you and inquire about the hope that is within you? It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the fact that not only did you receive the faith from our Lord Jesus Christ, but then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account, and knowing that inspires you to walk differently, act differently here on the planet, and then his divine power has given you everything that pertains to eternal life 
and godliness. The reason you walk in a different fashion, the reason that you walk out your life in a godly way, knowing full well the promises that have been made to you, the eternity that you are heading for, the only reason you know all that is because he has given it to you as a gift. And notice it doesn't just say some things. That would be a really sad sentence. If it says, he has given you some of the things pertaining to life and godliness. But as I've said, I've already said it this morning. I'm going to say it again. You're going to hear it out of me until I drop dead. God is not only in the enterprise of glorifying himself, but absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption is accomplished by God through Christ and through his spirit. And Peter says so right here. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. So which part do you add? None. None. You just, you don't add a thing to it. Everything necessary, everything pertaining to life and godliness, his divine power granted to you. That's why you have it. It was given to you through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, through the true knowledge. Where did you get the knowledge of the truth? Through the Holy Spirit who instructs us. Where'd you get the Holy Spirit? Gift from God. So God gave as a gift his spirit to educate you, to bring you to the knowledge of the truth, and that is the only reason that you understand the true knowledge of him who is calling you by his own glory and his own excellence. Even your knowledge of God's work in your life is a gift from God, teaching you to be more dependent on him because he is the one who is educating you in all things that have to do with life and godliness because he gave you everything. Pretty darn good so far. Wait, there's more. Verse 4. For by these... By this true knowledge of him, by everything pertaining to life and godliness, by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, by the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Wow is right. Why, since we're on the subject, be the Christian, why are you the Christian? Why are you walking in a Christian way? Why is your life, your thoughts, your behavior, why are those things different than the rest of the unsaved, rebellious world? It is because he not only granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness, he already through his Holy Spirit gave you the true knowledge of him who called you by his glory and excellence. But through doing all that, he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature so that you can live forever, so that you can be in heaven, so that you can be with God, with everything that he has promised you in eternity. And part of that is that we have escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Verse 5, 
Now, for this very reason also, Peter just keeps saying, and, and because of, and because of those reasons, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. What did Peter just do? He started by telling you who you are. He started with the indicative. He started with you are in Christ by his spirit, you have knowledge of the truth. Through his promises, you're going to be granted all the, the glory and the excellence because of the preciousness and the magnificence of those promises. And so you're going to be partakers of the divine nature. You've escaped the corruption of this world and its lusts. That's all true of you. Now, knowing that's true of you, here comes the imperative. Now walk like it. Now act like it. Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence, that means don't just take it haphazardly. Don't just assume that it's just going to happen magically. Instead, think about it. Apply yourself. Applying all diligence to your faith. Okay, I believe in Christ. That's my faith. I believe in the finished work of Christ, and he satisfied my sin debt. Okay, that's my faith, and I believe that because he satisfied my sin debt, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, so that's my faith. So then add to that faith moral excellence. Be moral. Walk differently. Apply to your faith, to your knowledge, to your recognition of everything that Christ has done for you. Apply to that a different way of living, a way of walking, a way of conducting yourself after a moral fashion. And to that moral excellence, add knowledge. That means that you don't just get to sit back on your laurels and go, well, I'm saved. Nothing more to find out here. Don't need to go to church. Don't need to read my Bible. Don't need to learn anything. I've pretty much got it. I got the Holy Spirit. I'm good to go. No, instead, what Peter says is, because of everything Christ has done for you, because he has saved you, because he has paid for your sin debt, walk in a way that is morally excellent and then add Knowledge of the things that God has done. Knowledge of his word. Knowledge of what he expects from you. And in your knowledge, add self-control. Because the more you know about God and his word, the more you understand what his expectation of you is. And your behavior is going to require some self-control. Why did I used to live the way I lived before I was saved? One very simple reason. No self-control. None whatsoever. If I wanted it, I got it. If I wanted to do it, I did it. And I had no thought of consequences. I had no thought of long-term consequences. I am a living example of if I had known that I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. That old adage is true of me because I lived without any thought of the future or consequences or self-control because human beings by their very nature do not have self-control. But then once you have the faith of God and once you have the Holy Spirit in you producing that faith, once you realize that you are to walk in a moral way, once your behavior is going to be changed by your increasing knowledge of God and who he is, add to all of that self-control. 
Control your flesh. Control your body. And add to your self-control perseverance. Keep it up. Keep at it. Keep going. Don't get discouraged. Recognize that this life is hard. And you know what? You have a high priest who knows it's hard. So you have no excuse. You can't go to him and say, okay, this is too hard. Well, he's already told you there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. He knows you can bear it. He knows you're capable of bearing it. He's provided a way of escape so that you can endure it. And he knows what you're like. And he knows your weakness. And he knows your dust. And therefore, continue in it. Persevere in it. And in your perseverance, godliness. In everything that that means. Not just moral excellence in terms of how you conduct yourself among other people but do all of that because you are worshiping God you are demonstrating to God that you love him and everything he has accomplished for you you are thankful to him and so to your perseverance you add this sense of godliness and to your godliness add brotherly kindness and what a surprise we're about to come 360 And to your brotherly kindness, love. When we began this whole series on Be the Christian, we started at love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love, one for the other. Peter, after going through that whole list, sums it up in love. Not just being kind to each other, not just being kin to each other, not just treating each other like family, but being sacrificial for one another. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, which is interesting, it means that you don't reach the point ever in this fleshly life where you can go, okay, I'm good. I'm about as Christian as it gets. Dig me if you want to see optimal Christianity, that's me. Instead, you're supposed to continue increasing, increasing in your knowledge, increasing in your self-control, increasing in your moral excellence, increasing in your perseverance, in your godliness, and in your brotherly kindness, and in your love. They're to be increasing throughout your life. If those qualities are yours and are increasing, then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. So the expectation is, if you're going to be the Christian, if you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have those kinds of qualities. And if you don't, you're blind, you're short-sighted, and you have forgotten about the purification from your former sins, from your former lusts. You've completely forgotten what it was that Christ did for you. Therefore, I said all that to get to the therefore. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. The King James, I believe, renders it as make your calling and election sure. Make it certain that you are the called, that you are the elect. That is fascinating on Peter's part. Because he's saying, 
you don't get to just rise to the intellectual ascent of saying, I recognize that I am elect, and therefore I don't have to react to that. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to behave a certain way. I don't have to increase in knowledge or kindness or love. I don't have to do any of that. Instead, what he says is, because you are the elect, because you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, therefore make that calling and election sure and certain by being diligent to be the way that he has just described you. As morally and behaviorally different than the rest of the world. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. It's 12 o'clock. I know I'm out of time. So let me just say briefly, if you go on the internet, you're going to find people out there who say, who believe, who are promoting the notion that if you just simply understand intellectually that Jesus saves via election, that that is the sure and certain proof that you are saved. Peter just exposed the lie of that kind of thinking. He said, if you are elect, if you are saved by God's electing grace, it's going to show. You're going to demonstrate it. You're going to walk out your life, your behavior, your morality. You're going to be different than the world. And you're going to do that as a demonstration of the fact that you are, in fact, elect. There is no such thing as simple theological intellectual election without Christian behavior that accompanies it. You don't find in the Bible the separation between the knowledge of salvation and the behavior that accompanies salvation. It's, it's all part and parcel of the exact same Bible and the exact same gospel. And you cannot separate the two even though people are attempting to do it. So if you come across that on your computer someday, just know for a fact that that's not biblical. Does that make sense? Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, which means you're never going to fall away completely. You're never going to be out of the will of God. For in this way, according to that behavior, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I would like entrance into heaven and the presence of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I would like that to be abundantly supplied to me. I would like to come rushing to the throne of grace in abundance. Well, he said, the sure and certain way to demonstrate that that's true of you is to act according to the behaviors that he has already spelled out. So let's look at the list one more time and we're done. For this very reason also, applying all diligence, really thinking about it, working at it, in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, supply perseverance. And in your perseverance, supply godliness. 
and in your godliness supply brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness supply love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So therefore... Not only do we have a high priest in the heavens who is constantly there at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Not only do we have a high priest who understands our infirmities, who understands our weaknesses and knows that we're just dust. Not only is he constantly presenting the sacrifice of himself to his father on behalf of us. But then we have him as a very present help in our times of temptation. And on top of that two for one deal, he also gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit takes up habitation in us. And his Holy Spirit leads us toward the holiness and the righteousness of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. And so that conforms our behavior. And therefore, we are more capable of being the Christian. Those are tremendous benefits of Christianity. Amen? Amen. Questions. We're good. Well, then Steve is going to hobble up here again, and we're going to sing about our high priest.
Have you all found this series to be as much of an encouragement and a blessing as I have? It has yes. been a wonderful uh, series, so thank you for undergoing it, and uh, thank you, Kellen, for bringing it uh, to the table. Uh, it's been it's been great to hear, and I, w- I was just pondering and thinking upon the fact that we frequently talk about Christianity as being the unique religion uh, in contrast to all the other religions of the world since uh, it's the only one where God comes to men versus men endeavoring to try to appease a, uh, a God, and it's unique in that sense. And uh, when we were talking about uh, the, the sympathy that uh, God bestows upon us, that is also, within that context, something that is uh, unique from a Christian perspective as well, because Allah and Buddha and whatever gods there may be, they're not tempted in the way that we are. They don't sympathize with us in the way that uh, our Savior does. They don't know our frame and know that we're but dust, but God does. And uh, that's just a such a wonderful personal blessing in that regard. Uh, and so I've really uh, appreciated that aspect of uh, this series. And uh, that's just a great cause for us to rejoice and and to praise him and to motivation to be the christian as we uh, uh as we've been taught so uh really been blessed by this series thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace sunday morning message we invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates books Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.